Well, as we said, we're back in the Gospel of Luke. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 51 to 56. The journey to Jerusalem. Or we might call it Jesus' determination to die for you. Luke 9, 51 to 56. Follow along as I read. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. This is the word of the living God. I recently finished the trilogy of the Lord of the Rings. Charlie and I were reading that, and uh, we just finished it towards the end of the year. And of course, if you're not familiar with that story, maybe you've seen the movies at least, or, or at least know what it is. Um, there's this ring to rule them all that has been created for ill purposes, and it, it's going to, this ruler, uh, Sauron, is going to use it to destroy the world, rule over everything, and he's evil and wicked. And so they have to destroy this, this ancient ring. And so Sam and Frodo, these these partners uh, are, are chosen really to lead the, uh, take the ring to this land of Mordor, to this volcano to destroy it. And in the first book, they, they begin their journey out from this really quaint, nice little, you know, green pastures called the Shire where they live. And they, they make their way to a, another city called Rivendell. And they, they get there and it's at Rivendell that they have this council where they're deciding how are they going to destroy this ring? It has to be destroyed. How will they do it? And they, they come up with a group of nine people who are, some are dwarfs, some are elves, some are men, and they are going to work together to get this ring to Mordor. And so from then on, they leave from this city, and from the rest of that time, they are journeying to Mordor. They are focused on getting to the ring to be destroyed. And that's really what, just as the, the cloud over the rest of the story is heading to Mordor. And, and so there are many challenges along the way. There's a lot of different things that happen in the story, but at every point, the focus is always directed towards getting the ring to its destination to be destroyed. Have this evil be destroyed once and for all. And that's really what you see as the trajectory of the book from then on. No matter what happens to them all along the way, they have to get there. And it's so in our passage this morning as well. Starting with Luke chapter 951, we begin the journey to Jerusalem. We've seen the birth of Jesus, the Messiah. We've seen the uh, beginnings of his public ministry located primarily in the north in Israel in the region we call Galilee. Uh, but now there is a turning point. It is at this point that Jesus leaves Galilee as his kind of home base of operations and he begins the journey to Jerusalem. He begins this final journey to go to his death. And that is what Luke is highlighting for us here. Now, from this point on, really from Luke 9.51 till the end of chapter 19, so just think 9 to 19, right? There's a good way to remember it. 9 to 19 is one section in Luke's gospel. 
And really, the focus is getting to Jerusalem and what will happen in Jerusalem. And there's really two major things that are going on here. One is that Jesus is, has his face set to, to die. And he's going to explain what the meaning of his death is going to be and the significance of it. But at the same time, he's going to be teaching a lot about discipleship in this section. What it means to be a disciple in light of the fact that Jesus is going to die for sinners. And so we're going to get a lot about what, the, what God's plans are, understanding the crucifixion, but also understanding what discipleship is to look like. And so when you get to chapters 20 to 24 and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, you have a lot of uh, significance of why that is happening based on chapters 9 to 19. And what's interesting about this section in Luke's gospel is that much of the material here that we will look at in 9 to 19 is unique to Luke. Some say around 44% of 9 to 19 is unique. It's not found in Matthew, Mark, or John. And so there's another thing that we find is that there's a shift in focus. There are not many miracles anymore. Jesus has been doing a lot of miracles up to this point. But now Luke focuses on teaching, the teaching of Jesus in this next section. And so here's something else to remember as Luke introduces this new section. It is not as though they're going directly to Jerusalem. Okay, we call it the journey to Jerusalem, but they could get there in about two days but they don't. They, th there's at least a month, some months before the crucifixion yet. And so why do we call it the journey to Jerusalem? Well, it's Luke's way of bracketing this material and putting all this material from 9 to 19 over this heading. It's Luke's way of doing this. Luke wants you to think in a kind of theological way over this whole, everything that's going to happen in 9 to 19. He wants you to see the cross looming over everything Jesus is saying. That is what shades everything, is the coming death and resurrection and ascension, ultimately, of Jesus. It's interesting that he sets off to Jerusalem in 951, and then in nine, at the end of 19, he comes into Jerusalem, what we call the triumphal entry, and, uh, and so it, it's, it's like bracketed. He finally arrives there. And actually throughout, we could look at multiple times where Luke reminds us of where they're headed, how they're going to Jerusalem, how they're going to Jerusalem. It just, it's his way of coming to remind you again and again, this is the, this is the section that we're in. And, and this is important because of course they'll get close to Jerusalem or maybe they'll go for a festival, but then they back away. But it's all headed towards Jerusalem. The point is his home base is no longer Galilee. They're on the road trip now until they get there. They don't really have a home base. They're just on the road until they get to Jerusalem. One preacher said, the focus is no longer on Jesus' coming, but on his going. That's the idea. We've seen Jesus coming, what his ministry is about, his teaching, but now we're seeing him going. There's really maybe three sections we could point out. Uh, maybe chapters 9 to 11, 12 to 13, and then 14 to 19. This first major section seems to focus on people's response to Jesus' word. And what we see in the beginning of these first steps on the journey to Jerusalem is that there is opposition from the beginning. The beginning of this journey is similar to how it will end, in rejection. They head out towards Jerusalem, and they're faced immediately with rejection from the Samaritans. When they get to Jerusalem, Jesus will be rejected. And so as we look at this section, um, 
It's very important, actually. It could, it's kind of, you might laugh at it because the disciples here as they're acting, <laughs> we'll see that in a little bit, but it's a very crucial passage because it is truly a major hinge point in Luke's gospel. And so we see three features of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem in verses 51 to 56. The first being the resolved determination of Jesus. The resolved determination of of Jesus in verse 51. Look there again at verse 51. It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This first, first verse is jam-packed. Uh, actually consider just spending like the whole time on this, but I mean, we got to make progress. <laughs> uh, but I'm going to give you a few subheadings for this to, to break it down. Uh, and you're like, really? There's that much here? Just wait, okay? It's like we're going to squeeze this like lemon and it's going to make some le lemonade here. <laughs> it's going to be really good. Uh, the first thing we want to notice is the fulfillment of Scripture. The fulfillment of Scripture. Luke is saying that at this moment, Jesus knows the time for his redemptive work in Jerusalem is coming close to fulfillment. Uh, the ESV doesn't have this statement, but there's a word that, that kind of introduces this to show it's a new section, like the LSB has, now it happened. Uh, the um, ESV just says, when the days drew near. The idea is, now it happened. So Luke is trying to separate this off and, and, and chunk this block of material and say, this is something new, something different. And he says, in the ESV, it says, when the days drew near. When the days drew near. Now this phrase, it, it, it's, it's a word that means fulfillment. It's a word that means fulfillment. Here's another translation. It says, now it happened that when the days for him to be taken up were soon to be fulfilled. And that's good because it, it draws out that idea of fulfillment. Why is that significant? Well, Luke's gospel is about fulfillment. Luke chapter one, verse one. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished, or it's the word fulfilled, things have been fulfilled among us, so fulfillment has the idea of promise and fulfillment. God had promised certain things in the past and now they're coming to fruition. Now they're happening. And so this is what Luke is highlighting for us. That when the days drew near or when the time of fulfillment was approaching, that's the idea Luke wants us to see. Uh, the, Luke is showing us that this is the fulfillment of God's plans for history coming to pass but what specifically? I mean, because we know God makes promises and different fulfillments come at different times. So what specific area of fulfillment are we talking about? Well, he tells us. It is for him to be taken up. For him to be taken up. What does that mean? For him to be taken up. Well, the word taken up, it, it's likely related to what Jesus said earlier in chapter 9, verse 31, when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And what were they discussing? It says they, Elijah and Moses appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which is a, he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And we pointed out that that word departure is the word exodus. There you go. You learned a Greek word, exodus. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's that idea of Jesus' departure, his, his exodus, his personal exodus to secure the corporate exodus of his people. But it's also a word that Luke himself will use in his second volume. Remember, Luke is two volumes, Luke and Acts. In Acts chapter one, Luke will use this term to refer to Jesus' ascension, to Jesus' ascension, his taking up in 
uh, chapter 1, verse 2, verse 11, verse 21, or sorry, verse 22. And so Luke has this idea of the ascension in mind. Paul will use this to refer to the ascension as well in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It says, He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So this is referring to the ascension more narrowly. Now, interestingly enough, taken up is the same word used in, so when the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek, this is the word they used in 2 Kings chapter 2 to refer to Elijah being taken up. Remember, he's taken up in the chariot into heaven. It is his ascension of sorts. And so that's significant because we're actually going to see another allusion to 2 Kings chapter 1 and Elijah in just a few verses. So that's kind of interesting. Just log that away. But he's referring to the ascension of Jesus. When it came time for the ascension of Jesus to be fulfilled, that's what he's talking about here. Now, it's not that Luke just wants us to think about the ascension. It's really that that is the, like the culminating point, the capstone moment uh, in a series of events. Really, Luke means to say that the death of Jesus is approaching, the resurrection of Jesus, and culminating all of that is the ascension. Or you don't have the ascension without the resurrection, and you don't have the resurrection without the crucifixion. So it's really that whole complex of events that's being referred to here in this phrase, being taken up. It refers to the Father taking him up in approval of his work. In Luke chapter 18, verse 31, we read this. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished or will be fulfilled. Now, there, they're very close. Chapter 18 is one chapter before chapter 19. <laughs> so they're very close at that point. He's reminding them, why are we going to Jerusalem? So that everything that the prophets spoke about me, the Son of Man, will be fulfilled, will be accomplished. And so this is what is taking place. The pivotal moment of history, the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the Messiah is about to be fulfilled. Jesus knows he's on a divine timetable. He refers in chapter 18 to how the prophets prophesied this. In chapter 24, after his resurrection, he will say this to the, the two men on the road to Emmaus, that all the things prophesied by the apostles must be fulfilled. Uh, Peter will say this on, after the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 3, that everything that the prophets spoke about Jesus' first coming had to be fulfilled. Jesus is fulfilling the eternal plans of the triune God. He's on a divine timetable. In chapter 13 of Luke, verse 31, we read, At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Here is how it must happen. And you'll see that other times when people want to take Jesus and take him by force, it says it, it, he escaped their midst because it was not yet his hour. His hour had not yet come. He is on a divine timetable and he knows it. Jesus knows the plan. And he is focusing his attention on that now. 
Ever heard someone say to you when things seem to be going wrong? They say, don't worry, it's all according to plan. Everything's going according to plan. That's what's happening here. Jesus is going to remind his disciples again and again, it's all going according to plan. Or maybe you've had this experience where you've, you're watching a movie or reading a book and uh, the cover, you know, has some of the characters, the actors on it. And, uh, and maybe you haven't seen the other movies, but you have seen the other covers of the other movies coming. And so you're watching this and you see, you know, you're like worried about one of the characters. And are they going to die in this movie? Are they going to, what's going to happen to them? And you see their face on the next cover and you go, oh, they can't die. They've hired this actor for the next movie. So they're, they're definitely in the next movie. So therefore, they haven't died. And, and it gives you some encouragement. Okay, you know, it's going to be okay. It might look crazy, but it's all according to plan. And I know it's happening next. <laughs> you know they're not going to die in the first movie because they're on the cover of the next one. Doesn't that help you think better about what's happening with Christ and your own future? It's as if he's saying everything is according to plan. Let me just tell you the plan. Here's where everything is headed. And God has detailed his plan so specifically for us that we may not know the next thing for our lives, but we know where history is headed. And we can almost locate ourselves in history at what point we are at and what is going to happen next and next and next. And so it's like God says, hey, okay, you may not know how this moment is going to play out, but you've seen the next movie and the next movie You've seen the next age and the one after that and you know the people that are there and you know some of the things are going to happen and so you can go, okay, I don't know how it's going to play out but I know the ending. And so Jesus is, Luke is really actually reminding us of this time of fulfillment. This is exactly the way it's supposed to happen and the disciples, they still don't get it. They don't understand how this is all supposed to fit together yet and, and work together but they will. It will become clearer to them as time passes. But for now, He's emphasizing this is the time of fulfillment. And this then leads us to the next phrase in this verse, and we'll call it the face of Messiah, the face of Messiah. Not only the fulfillment of Scripture, but the face of Messiah. He sa it says, in, once again, verse 51, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, notice how Luke describes the determination of Jesus to go to Jerusalem to die. It's this idiom uh, to set his face one um, dictionary, Greek dictionary says it means to cause to be inwardly firm or committed. It speaks of strength. It speaks to Jesus' resolve, his determination, his commitment. He was determined to go to Jerusalem to die for those whom the Father had given to him. Now, this is kind of a, you know, interesting phrase. It doesn't, it's not like a normal phrase. So why use this? Well, Luke wants to jog your memory, your Bible memory. He's using this specific phrase. Authors do this to, to use a unique phrase, a special phrase that, that connects back somewhere else. It has to be specific enough that you know it's supposed to link somewhere. It can't be so general uh, that it, it could link anywhere. Luke uses a specific enough statement, idiom, to link us to a particular place in the Old Testament of significance to the Messiah in this moment. Luke is connecting us back to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 50 in particular. And Isaiah 50 is about the, the, the servant of Yahweh, the servant of Yahweh. 
So if you go to Isaiah 50, Isaiah 50, and here let me just give you a brief flyover of Isaiah here. <laughs> Not a simple task. There's two parts to Isaiah. One, chapters 1 to 39, and chapters 40 to 66. It actually breaks down the same way that, I mean, the verse the chapter divisions are not inspired, but that's how our Old and New Testament breaks down as well as as many chapters as there are in the Old and New Testament books comparatively. Isaiah 1 to 39, you could say it like this. It is what God is going to do with the universe. What God is going to do. Chapters 40 to 66 say, how is God going to do this? How is he going to, we know the what, but how will he do it? And he will do it through his Messiah, through his servant, as Isaiah calls him. And in, in chapters 40 to 66, there's really three major sections. And within those three sections, there are four particular passages that we call servant songs because they are about a person who is called the servant of the Lord or the servant of Yahweh. And this servant is both, as you look at it carefully, this servant is divine, but also this servant is human. And so you begin to realize the way God is going to do what he said he's going to do is through this servant who is both divine and human. And each of the songs tells us something different about what the Messiah will be about, what he will do. And it culminates in that fourth servant song that we've actually studied in the past, Isaiah 52 to 53, and we call it the suffering servant because it talks about the, the death, the crucifixion and resurrection of the servant, of the Messiah. But this is the one just before that. This is the third servant song. The Arab Davis summarizes the three pictures given in this servant song of the Messiah. The, the Messiah, the servant, is pictured as the disciple skilled in God's word in verse 4, the sufferer submissive to God's will in verses 5 to 6, and the believer sure of God's help in verses 7 to 9. Let's look at this. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4. It says, The Lord Yahweh has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord Yahweh has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord Yahweh helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me to me. Behold, the Lord Yahweh helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. And of course it continues, but that's the bulk of the servant song there. Here we see Isaiah and in Luke that Messiah is determined to die. He set his face like flint. This is where Luke is referring to Isaiah 50 verse 7. To speak about Jesus' commitment, his determination. And notice how it is that he's able to set his face. It's because of his confidence that Yahweh will keep him. He will carry him. And vindicate him in the end. He says, verse 7, but the Lord Yahweh helps me. Therefore, because Yahweh helps the servant, therefore I have not been disgraced, and therefore I have set my face like flint. 
One writer said he will be victimized and vindicated in Jerusalem. What's interesting is that there are other times where this idea of setting one's face is used in the Old Testament. Um, and it, as I looked up, uh, all of them that I could find, um, and I, I don't think I was exhaustive, but all of those that I looked at were related to God's judgment upon someone. Like, if someone does this, I will set my face upon him. Or this city is, is doing this, so I will set my face against them. And so it is interesting that the Messiah then sets his face towards what God's will is, namely to face the wrath of God, to face God's judgment, to endure for sinners what they deserve when God sets his face against them. But Jesus knew this was all according to plan. This was the way for sinners to be saved. This is why the book of Hebrews will tell us this in chapter 12, verse 2, which says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He, he looked forward to the joy set before him. He knew the plan. We must pause and just appreciate the courage of our Savior. Uh, appreciate the resolve of your Savior to go to the cross undeterred, knowing exactly what was facing him there to go to Jerusalem, to set his face there in obedience to the Father. Jesus is the servant of Yahweh committed to God's will for your benefit. And there are great implications here that should give us hope based on Jesus' determination to go to Jerusalem. It means that he is more than willing to save. He's more than willing to save. If he was this determined to accomplish salvation, then of course he is more than willing to apply the work of salvation. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says. As he was ready to suffer, so he is always ready to save. The man that comes to Christ by faith should never doubt Christ's willingness to receive him. The mere fact that the Son of God willingly came into the world to die and willingly suffered should silence such doubts entirely. All the unwillingness is on the part of man, not of Christ. It consists in the ignorance and pride and unbelief and half-heartedness of the sinner himself. But there is nothing wanting in Christ. Isn't that an encouragement to you? That this one, this Savior, is more than willing to save, no matter what your sin. He knew exactly what he was going to do. He is more than willing. I think there's more here that we can derive application for in our lives, that not only does Christ go there to procure salvation for those whom the Father gave to him, but... He also provides us an example as believers in setting our face to do the will of God that is clear and revealed to us in Scripture. A, a lesson on discipleship. What do you know to be the will of God in your life based upon Scripture? Not just your inclinations, but, but what you know the Scripture to teach. I know this is what God wants me to do from his word. Well, is your face set to do that? Are you determined to do that? Do you have a resolve to do that? Think about some other area where you definitely know you're resolved in. You definitely know you are committed to. You are all in. Does your commitment to what you know to be the will of God match that commitment and resolve? Does it go above that? Does it go below that? What does your determination and resolve for God's will look like? 
Ryle says again, he's helpful here in this passage. He says, let us set our faces steadfastly to our work. When our work is plainly marked out and drink our cups patiently when they come from a father's hand. Jesus sets his face. He knows this is God's will. And so he goes. And for us, sometimes the will of God is so crystal clear from his word. It's just for us to set our face as well by the strength that God supplies What gave Christ such resolve was that Yahweh would carry him through and let that be your confidence and your resolve to obey God as well. This is the face of Messiah. But why does all this take place in Jerusalem? Well, this is the third point of this first point. Don't worry, this is our longest point. The focal point of history. The focal point of history. It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. To Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Why there? Well, because Jerusalem theology has been built throughout scripture. It is a focal point. It is a focal place in God's plans. It actually goes back to Eden. Eden was God's special place for the first Adam to rule from and over the earth. It was likely a high mountain from which rivers flowed out to the rest of the land. But of course, Adam failed in his task and so he was put out of Eden. Later though, Abraham encounters a man named Melchizedek, who is a king and a priest from Salem, Jerusalem. He is actually a king priest in the city of Jerusalem before it is the capital of the kings. Abraham later attempts to offer Isaac in Jerusalem in Genesis 22. God in Deuteronomy chapter 12 tells his people that they are to worship in one place because he is one God and the place that he will appoint, which later we know to be Jerusalem. David makes Jerusalem his capital and thus the capital for all Davidic kings in the future. And so therefore, Jesus' death is to be in Jerusalem as well as his resurrection. And yet it will also be the place where he returns to and where he will rule over and from in the new earth. It is the capital city. The new Jerusalem in scripture in the future, according to Isaiah 2 and Micah 4, will be a high mountain where waters will flow from down to other places in the land. So Jerusalem is a focal point in history. It is the, the, the whereas Eden was the, the high mountain where the first Adam was to rule from but failed, Jerusalem will be the high mountain where the second Adam successfully rules from and over the earth. And so Jerusalem is a focal point in history. It is the king's city. And so he's going to Jerusalem. It is also why the disciples must stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. This is our city. And it's from there, that epicenter, that they will go out from there to the rest of the world. And so this is the the focal point of history. Not only this place and its significance in scripture, but what will happen there. The death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And so here we see in this first point, Luke just packs it in. The resolved determination of Jesus in the fulfillment of scripture, the face of Messiah, and the focal point of history. Second, we see, as we see the journey of Jerusalem, the rejected delegation of Jesus. Second point, the rejected delegation of Jesus in verses 52 and 53. Look at verse 52. It says, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. As his journey begins, they're, so they're in the north, 
in the Galilee region, they're going to go south to Jerusalem, okay? Jerusalem is south from their location. To go south, if you're gonna go due south, you pass through the region of Samaria. And so that is Jesus' plan. And literally the text reads, he set his messengers before his face. See that just repetition of the face idea? It'll come up again. Uh, They could not just drop in because likely they have quite an entourage with them. And so Jesus sends up a delegation to go and just prepare some, some lodging for them uh, and a place to stay. But the fact that he sends them into Samaria is significant. See, Jews and Samaritans hated one another. And it's here we have to kind of look at some historical background to really appreciate what's going on here. The Jews would avoid this area intentionally. If you were in Galilee and you wanted to go to Jerusalem for a festival or feast, most Jews would do this. Instead of going directly due south, the easiest route, they would cross the Jordan River. I guess for you guys, it's over here. They would cross the Jordan River uh, east, go south, and then recross the Jordan River again west to go back in, and they would approach Jerusalem. So they could totally avoid and bypass the region of Samaria. Such was their disdain for the Samaritans. But Jesus does not do this on this occasion or even on other occasions. Remember the John 4 and the Samaritan woman? Again, Jesus intentionally goes to this region. So Jesus sends his delegation of his disciples into the city they're approaching. But let's ask a little more about the Samaritans. Who are these people? Why is there such hatred? Well, if you go back to the time of the exile, remember there, Israel and Judah split And there was Judah in the south and Israel in the north. There's 10 tribes in the north. And in 722 BC, the Assyrians come. They they remove the northern kingdom, the northern 10 tribes. They take them into exile to Assyria. And then what the Assyrians did, according to their policy, was they repopulated that region. And they repopulated that area known as Samaria. And what happened was there was some intermarriage between some Jews and and, and Gentiles through that season, that time, which, which created the... Samaritans, essentially. And so they're, they're like half-blood Jews. And so this brought disdain from those in the South who were more pure-blood Jews is the idea. And so that is a, a starting point to this. But then when those, in, those were started to return in Ezra and Nehemiah to the land after exile, they started to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And so some Samaritans showed up in Ezra chapter four and they says, hey, can we help too? But they have a kind of a messed up religion now. They have a syncretized where they've blended forms of paganism and godlessness with worship of Yahweh and they have a corrupted system and they want to help, but they're denied helping. No, no, you cannot help us. And so they start opposing the building of the temple in Jerusalem. Fast forward a little bit uh, and that's a lot of, that's a thorn in the side of, of those trying to rebuild Jerusalem at the time. Fast forward a little bit. The, um, the Samaritans build a rival temple on Mount Gerizim in the north. And they actually only uh, adhere to the first five books now of the Old Testament, Genesis to Deuteronomy. And they have their rival temple, a rival liturgy uh, going on up at Mount Gerizim. Well, John Hycranus, uh, a Judean leader during the intertestamental period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, he comes in and he destroys the temple at Mount Gerizim. That doesn't go over well in these relations. And so there's this constant back and forth between uh, these peoples. 
A Samaritan woman expresses these differences in John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, first we read that he had to pass through Samaria in verse 4. And then in verse 9, we read, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John says in parentheses, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. In verse 20 then, we read this. She's asking him about worship. And she says in verse 20, Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And so there's this conflict. It's gone back and forth. Well, we worship at Gerizim. You worship at Jerusalem. What what is the right place? And Jesus is like, well, salvation is from the Jews. Jerusalem is the right place. You guys are wrong. And so you see this tension going on. A serious insult, according to a Jew, uh, was to call a Jew a Samaritan. In John chapter 8, listen to what they said to Jesus. In John chapter 8, verse 48, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? I mean, just think about it. They're putting those two together. You're demon-possessed and you're a Samaritan. (laughs) Uh, You can see what they think about Samaritans. Great tensions here between these two groups. With all that historical background, then we read verse 53. But the people did not receive him. That's the people of Samaria. Because his face was set toward Jerusalem. They reject him. Now, and it's interesting, it says they rejected Jesus, but because of the delegation that was sent. Why do they reject Jesus and his delegation? Well, the text tells us because his face was set towards Jerusalem. The destination is the issue. That's what Luke is emphasizing. He emphasized Jerusalem in the prior verse, uh, in verse 51. Now he emphasizes it again. The destination is the issue. And with that historical background, you can see they're saying, if you're going to Jerusalem, you guys are rejecting our form of worship. We don't want anything to do with you. This is a, a tacit rejection of Mount Gerizim and their form of worship. And once again, Luke emphasizes the face for the third time. He says he set his face. That because you set his face to go to Jerusalem, they rejected him. And this may have, this may have forwarded the, the progress of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. I mean, you think if they had accepted him and Jesus had stayed there for this village for a while doing ministry and miracles and, and other types of teaching, it would have slowed the progress down. But in, in God's mysterious providence, their rejection ends up uh, speeding up the process. So Jesus goes to just another town and it kind of moves him along towards Jerusalem, mysterious in God's providence and yet all according to plan. But here's what I want us to see from this. How sad it is when false religious beliefs hinder people from receiving Jesus Christ. I mean, how many times there are who, and people who have false beliefs about the Bible, about Jesus, about God, about how to worship, uh, that, have, that have attached themselves to their, their thinking like barnacles. And uh, th- there's various reasons why they hold to them. Sometimes it's just, tradition that they have done it like this way and so they just keep on doing it like they did in Samaria or maybe it's the tight connection to family. Family has done this and so there's this connection there and so it's like we can't reject this belief, we can't reject this practice, we've always done it, our family has done it this way. What will they say? And the Samaritans have long and deep roots of practicing worship the wrong way. And they are stubborn and proud to change and repent of their wrong practice. 
Of course, you can have unbelieving Jews, and you do have that, but you also have believing Jews. Their practices are not backed up by Scripture, and yet they hold fast to them to their own destruction. And how sad it is. Maybe you know people like this. But how strong a family connection can keep one from the truth of Scripture, despite no backing in Scripture for those beliefs. And so it is a, it is a worthwhile consideration to see why they rejected this delegation of Jesus because of their false tradition their, and, their, and their faulty allegiance to family over truth. And so they reject him because they have this wrong system that they will not reject, that they will not question. It's a warning to those who would not evaluate every teaching that they have according to the scripture and hold fast to what is true. Finally, we see here the rebuked disciples of Jesus, the rebuked disciples of Jesus. In verse 54 and to 56. Verse 54, look there. It says, And when the disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? James and John have the safety off and their trigger, or their finger is on the trigger. Lord, should we take the shot? I mean, they are, they are ready to go. Lord, should we take them out? They have the target painted. They're waiting on authorization for an airstrike. Now, remember that James and John are brothers. You can kind of see why they are called by a nickname, Bonerges, the sons of thunder in Mark 3.17. We don't know if they got that because of this, before this, uh, just because of their boisterous, personalities at this time. You know, it's amazing to see the transformation in John's life later as he becomes known as the apostle of love. But here, he's still being shaped into what God would have him to be. And they are wanting to see judgment come upon this city for their rejection. Now, before we get on to them too much, there may be some things that we might notice of commendable nature. I know. How, how do you see that? Well, they see Christ dishonored here, and they want to see him honored. I mean, that's a basic point. They are going about it the wrong way at this time, but they certainly want to see Christ honored. Not only that, notice that they believe that Jesus has the authority to do such a thing, to grant such a thing to them. They're confident that Jesus has the authority, if he would will it, for fire to come down. But the problem is their timing is all wrong. They still don't get where they are located in redemptive history and the mission of Jesus at this point. But where would they get an idea like this? I mean, it just seems like random, like fire. What? Like, uh, that's your suggestion. Where do they get that? Well, there's actually another passage that is very much like this situation. A lot of parallels in 2 Kings chapter 1. 2 Kings chapter 1. And if you go back there, you see what is happening there. Well, Ahaziah is the king, and he's an apostate king in Israel in the north. He is up on his roof, and he falls through the lattice. He gets hurt, and he's like maybe going to die. So he inquires of a false god, and uh, when he goes to inquire, they... uh, point out that Elijah's in existence and, and Elijah's like, yeah, you're going to die. And uh, so basically he sends a delegation to Elijah 
uh, basically to capture him and execute him. He's upset at Elijah. And so look at 2 Kings, if you're there, if you want to, chapter 1, verse 9. Then the king sent to him, that's Elijah, a captain of 50 men with his 50. And he went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of 50, If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Instant carbon, you know. Uh, Verse 11, Again, the king sent him another captain of 50 men with his 50. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Again, the king sent the captain of a third 50 with his 50. Relentless. And the third captain of 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him, O man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of 50 men with their 50s. But now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of Yahweh said to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, thus says Yahweh, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron, it is, because, is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of the word? Therefore, you shall not come down from your bed, from the bed to which you have gone up, you, but you will surely die. So he died according to the word of Yahweh that Elijah had spoken. And he just walks out into the sunset. I mean, just what a powerful story. So, Isaiah is a, is a apostate king in the region of Samaria, sending these representatives to Elijah. And Elijah's like, God, protect me. Protect me, God. And fire comes out and destroys these first two groups. Here's what's interesting. In 2 Kings 1, Elijah calls down fire from heaven. In 2 Kings 2, Elijah's taken up to heaven in the chariot in that same word that's used for Jesus' coming, being taken up. Now, this passage hasn't been written yet in Luke, But in Revelation 11, which will be written later by John, verse 5, you have these two witnesses during the tribulation period that have the ability to call fire down from heaven and consume their enemies. Or, or, you know, fire comes out from them and consumes them. And so it is a throwback to that same thing that Elijah did. So it seems reasonable that James and John might have been thinking that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to set up his kingdom. And they want to bring final judgment on those who reject the king policy of James and John is turn or burn. But it's not time for that yet. It's not time for that yet. Look at verses 55 and 56. But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. Jesus rebuked the disciples regarding this question. Yet we're not told what he said to them. You might say, well, my Bible tells me what was said to them. Uh, if you have a, maybe a King James or NESB, they're putting in brackets. And ESV put it in the, in the footnote here, if you have a footnote. And you're, if you have questions about that, happy to go more depth. But basically, sometimes you have uh, 
a scribe who included something in uh, later, it maybe was an editorial comment or they wanted to add something uh, to give clarity uh, and it made its way in. And so there's a whole process of determining what was the original text as they compare manuscripts uh, known as textual criticism. And they, they, they put a number of principles down to, to determine some of these things. Um, they prefer the oldest reading because they figure that uh, whatever the oldest manuscript said are likely to be the original reading and that things were added on rather than subtracted. They prefer shorter readings because they would expect uh, someone to elaborate, a scribe to elaborate, maybe in the, in the margin to say, like a, a, an editorial comment to say, maybe this is what's going on here, and then that somehow made it in later. And they prefer harder readings because they think that uh, it's more likely that some, a scribe would try and smooth something out for clarity in the margin than to make something more difficult than it was already easier. And so that's how they kind of reason through some of these things and determine why some things should be in brackets and why others not uh, when they have a questionable thing. When you look at the comparison of manuscripts, what you find is that 99% really of our, of our text that we have, our Greek uh, text, is uh, without question. They're in all agreement. Uh, there's like a, a percent of a percent of, it, of passages that, that have to do with things that are more not doctrinally significant, but just questions like, hmm, does this passage actually go in here or not? And, um, and so you have a passage like this, they put in brackets, and it says, actually, I'll just read the ESV note here. This is, we're getting a little technical just for a second. It says, some manuscripts add, and he said, for you do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man came not to destroy people's lives, but to save them. That's like found later in the Bible, but, it, but it's questionable whether that was said here. Maybe they wrote it as a comment as in, the, in the margin it made its way in. So likely not part of Luke's original writing, though it's not an untrue statement later in the Gospels. But putting that aside, if you have more questions, come talk to me. Just want, you know, sometimes you read these things, and you're like, what is that bracket for? Why, why did they say that? You know, well, the earliest manuscripts don't have that, so they didn't include it. Um, so, but what, what might he have said? What might he have said? Well, how about this? Luke 6, verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Or how about John 3, 17? For the, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Guys, were you there for the Sermon on the Mount? <laughs> do you not remember what time it is in history? Last time we, in our study of Luke, we looked at the failures of the disciples. Well, let's just add this one to it. Right, they're mistaking the mission field. Like unbelievers are not uh, our enemies. They're the mission field. We were unbelievers at one point, right? We, and so they, they're like, let's take them out. They're, they're going all the way to the final judgment and bringing that into the present. And Jesus is saying, that is not the time right now. They're still misunderstanding all that Messiah will do and when he will do it. Yes, will God judge unbelievers with fire? Absolutely. Is that coming one day? Yes. But is that right now? No. Jesus has come in the first coming to, to offer himself as a sacrifice for sinners and raise from the dead and offer the gospel to all nations. It is the time of God's patience. Later will be the time when he returns where he will destroy his enemies and rightly punish them. But now is the time of gospel proclamation. Many principles here. But just think of a few. We don't respond to religious persecution with retaliation. If that increases, we respond with love, with patience. How do we respond when we are wronged? Well, Romans 12, 17 says, leave it to the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. 
But then the next chapter, chapter 13, tells us we can make use of the civil authorities if that's appropriate. And so there's this balance. We say, okay, we may not see perfect justice before the second coming, but it will come. And so we can rest and wait for that. At the same time, we can seek to get whatever kind of um, uh, justice that the, the courts can provide, Romans 13, we can make use of that. I mean, Paul is like beaten and he's like, uh, they're like, hey, get out of here, get out of town. He's like, uh, do you guys know that I'm a Roman citizen? That you're not allowed to do that? And they're like, uh-oh, we're in trouble. And he's like, you guys are not just gonna let me get out of here. So he kind of makes use of that privilege. But here's another principle. Jesus came for the lost. He has patience for those who reject. Second Peter 3 verse 9 reminds us that God is patient. He's patient. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. With the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. All those whom the Father has given to the Son, God is waiting for all those to reach repentance. And so he's patient with those who reject, giving them time. Jesus corrects them. And in so doing, he shows who the mission field is right now. John Piper writes this helpfully. He says, a mistaken view of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem can lead to a mistaken view of discipleship. This is why Luke is teaching us in this section about how to think about discipleship. What are we doing in this era? What are we doing? How should we think? And Jesus is preparing them to think about who the mission field is rightly. It is not the time for final judgment. It is the time for the free offer of the gospel. And what's interesting, John will go back to Samaria in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter eight, and he will preach the gospel to them. And there will be an incredible response of Samaritans repenting and believing in the Messiah that he will get to witness later. But here in Luke 9, we see a zeal, but a zeal lacking in knowledge. Ryle helps us again here to put this to our hearts. He says, it is possible to have much zeal for Christ and yet it exhibit it in most unholy and unchristian ways. It is possible to fancy that we have scripture on our side and to support our conduct by scriptural quotations and yet to commit serious errors. Ooh, careful. They certainly had a scriptural example. Look, Elijah did it. It was in the region of Samaria. They were apostate. What's the deal? How is this not the same? Ralph says again, we must seek to have knowledge as well as zeal. Zeal without knowledge is an army without a general and a ship without a rudder. We must pray that we may understand how to, to make a right application of scripture. This is why we need a consistent way to interpret the Bible from beginning to end that we stay and hold fast to. A literal, grammatical, historical approach to reading the Bible and applying the Bible so that we don't take things out of context and, and apply them in ways that are improper. We have to rightly divide the word of truth and apply it rightly as well. And how true it is that we need to be re-reminded of our mission over and over again, lest we have mission drift, lest we get off the mission. What is the mission of the church? Proclamation, proclamation of the gospel to all peoples. That is our singular mission. So we ask this question, what time is it? What time, you're like, it's lunchtime. Let us out, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> what time is it? Where are we in history according to God's timetable is what I mean. Where are we? Where do we fit? 
This is the best time to live. Let me just tell you that. I mean, indoor plumbing, that's great. But uh, uh, running water, clean water. But beyond that, in redemptive history, this is an incredible time to live. As God's plans are, we live in the days of fulfillment. Yes, there's more things to be fulfilled, but look at what has been fulfilled. Look at what Jesus accomplished. Things that people look towards and wondered about that we have clarity on and have seen take place in the past. We live in between the ascension and the return of Jesus. He has gone to the right hand of the Father, awaiting that time when he will return and reign from Zion with a rod of iron. We will rule with him. That's where we live in between. We live in the time of the gospel offered to all peoples. Let us not forget where we live, what time it is. If we forget what time it is, we get distracted. The time now is gospel proclamation. It is the church's mission. This is why the church is so significant. It is not a throwaway organization. This is the organization for right now. This is the one organization God has ordained for this time in world history to make proclamation clear of the gospel. No one else will do it. If the church fails, which it won't, because God is sovereign and he is going to assure that the church succeeds, but we have a responsibility. And so we proclaim the message. This is the time we live. What an exciting time to have the precious light of the truth in the gospel and to be focused on giving that out. And so Jesus reorients them to what time it is. Luke actually has a long section in Acts where he shows the journey of Paul to Jerusalem and ultimately to Rome. And Paul is continuing the mission of Jesus by taking the message everywhere and we follow in that same mission. Yes, judgment is coming, fire is coming, but now is the day of salvation. Behold, today is the day of salvation. And so we say, come. Come while there's time. Come while it is the day of salvation. Do not delay. This is our message. It's been said, tomorrow is the devil's day. Today is the day of salvation. And so while we have time, let us make the gospel known and let us embrace it ourselves. Let's pray. Father, as we see this journey to Jerusalem, may it remind us that you are right on time, always. You're fulfilling your purposes, your plan. You are accomplishing what you've promised. Lord, we see so much fulfillment in this first coming of Jesus, Messiah. We see and appreciate his determination to endure the wrath that we deserved. And we see uh, sad rejection of him. Even today we see that. People's hard-heartedness, people's blindness to the truth because of traditions of men and false teaching. Lord, we pray you free them from that. Bring them into the light of the knowledge of the, the gospel, truth about Christ. And Lord, help us to know our mission, to know our mission field, to be bold in our proclamation, to not fear men, but to fear you. And Lord, in having that purpose clear, may it give us just such a focus and a clarity and a joy as we live in this time. What an exciting time. Lord, come Lord Jesus and bring your kingdom. But Lord, help us to be faithful in the time you give us here, in, in the opportunities and relationships you give us. Lord, may we be clear with the gospel and living it and proclaiming it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's respond with, I'd rather have Jesus, I'd rather have